Good afternoon. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of London Live. I am indeed your guest host, Jess Brady. Mike Stubbs still on vacation this week. Well deserved. He is the hardest working man in radio. And uh, yeah, so he's taking some time off. So I'm filling in for him. We have uh, two more shows together today and tomorrow. I'm off on Friday. Uh, yeah, so we have a, a busy show today. Lots on the go. It's jam packed. We're going to be talking uh, t- about a number of issues today. We're starting off uh, with we're dedicating like the first uh, uh, you know, good chunk of the show to discussion of Canada Day and how we should be considering the lens with which we view Canada Day, especially from the perspective of Indigenous peoples. And it's going to be a really interesting discussion, and uh, I'm excited to tell you who I have in studio to talk about this with. But I want to give you a little bit of a, of a look forward at some of the other things that are coming up in the show as well. We're talking about uh, anti-human trafficking in the city and the efforts to try and keep young people safe from that activity, which is uh, just obviously very traumatic and horrible. So we're going to be talking to Aura Burdett, uh, who's working with the Sally Ann and also the London Anti-Human Trafficking Committee in their their work that they're doing there to to help families uh, cope with this. Also, how do you feel about a geese cull or a goose cull, Canada geese cull in Denver? Yeah, we'll tell you what the city of Denver is doing there and 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 what they're doing with the meat from the geese that they are culling. Yeah, it's really interesting. Also, did you use the uh, free Wi-Fi in downtown London that was provided by the city? Well... It's no more. We're going to talk to Jeanette McDonald, who's the general manager of downtown London, about that and the decision around it. Get some context there. Also, did you have tickets for Roxidus? If you did, I have bad news for you. Organizers have announced that it has been cancelled. We're going to have the excellent Alan Cross on to talk about that. That's coming up in the second hour of the program. And uh, do you have little ones? who are on summer vacation right now. We're going to talk about the summer slide and how to prevent that. We'll explain all of that and more coming up on London Live this afternoon. But let's get down to uh, our first topic, which, again, was Canada Day. It was just a couple days ago. And the lens with which we view it. In studio joins me Frances Elizabeth Moore. She's an Indigenous activist and the Operations and National Outreach Manager for We Matter. And I wanted to get her perspective on this because, you know, Canada Day, it is a great day to celebrate all that is wonderful about our country that we live in. But there is a tension now, and as there should be, when we're talking about issues that affect our in, the Indigenous peoples in, 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 this, in this country. So Francis joins me now, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how we view Canada Day. Francis, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. I very much appreciate you taking the time to share your perspective on this. Ah, oh, much for having me. It's been uh, a couple days now since Canada Day, but I feel like in the celebrations that happened on Monday, there was definitely a different awareness and more discussion, even in the media that I found, of uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous um, communities as we were talking about Canada Day celebrations. Did you get a sense of that or how did you feel about coverage this year and, and discussions surrounding it? Truthfully, I kind of sort of stayed offline on Canada Day. Um, for me, it's tough to be on online and, and see folks celebrating. Um, we used to celebrate um, not so much the holiday, just being with uh, family. And in, in a way, we still we still do. Um, but the actual Canada birthday, it's hard to uh, it's hard to get behind that being an Indigenous woman um, and knowing more than I did when I was younger. 
um, about uh, Canada's history and how that impacts me today. Um, so yeah, I stayed 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 largely um, offline. I'm not going to fault anybody for um, you know for celebrating and spending time with their uh, their families, but that party wasn't for me and wasn't for other Indigenous folks largely. Right. It's. I feel like a, a real tension. I felt that tension more so this year than in years previous. And I think a lot of that had to do with the results of the inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls mm. and the... Um, just the attention that that got less than a month ago. It was right at the beginning of June. And I feel like there was more discussion of it in some of the, in some of the media coverage, but also just in general. Like I saw a lot more people online sharing, uh, you know, yes, celebrate, but also let's remember everything that we've just learned and mm-hmm. everything that we should have learned a long time ago. Um, local uh, poet and actual now international speaker, Najwa Zabian, I thought she posted something that was quite interesting and, and she was wearing a red dress in this post. She's like, I'm wearing red for Canada, the country that I love. I'm paraphrasing her post here, mm-hmm. um, but also red to represent missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls. And I thought that is a very interesting balance to strike. Yes. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's difficult uh, for her in particular because uh, she's also an immigrant to this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And with that, um, in my past work, I worked with immigrants, newcomers, and they are not really taught um, Canada's history. Right. Um, When I worked with immigrants, newcomers, I was often the first Indigenous person that they ever Uh, met Um, in my old office I would have folks come up to me and start speaking Spanish to me oh wow um, because they assumed uh, I was brown um, and that meant that I was Latino of some sorts right um, when in reality not close (laughs) (laughs) cousins but uh, but not not Spanish speaking at all Um, so Having that piece missing, she's had to do a lot of um, research mm-hmm. and uh, learning on her own because also the school system doesn't touch on everything. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, ideally, one day it will because that will mean that we are going to be raising more knowledgeable, informed uh, folks who um, will be more compassionate to uh, some of the issues that Indigenous folks um, go through just simply because of colonization. Yeah. Uh, so she's she's done an immense amount of legwork to learn what she's learned um, and uh, posting uh, that in solidarity using her platform mm-hmm. is an amazing thing that anyone with any platform yeah. uh, can really do without taking away any Indigenous voices. She stood up and said, I stand with them. Right. So... Um, much love to her. I, I, <laughs> she's actually one of one of my friends. Um, but, she's lovely. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> lovely person. Nothing but nice things Absolutely. to say. Yeah. Um, but again, that's that's what you do when you have a when you have a platform mm-hmm. uh, such as hers. Uh, so I, I definitely appreciate that the the attention that she because she's going to reach other folks that I wouldn't mm-hmm. or that Indigenous folks wouldn't uh, when. You know, we share things. Right. So that's um, that's interesting part because she's in turn uh, sparking that fire in other folks to learn. I feel like sometimes there is this sense that you can't be patriotic about 
your your country, like wherever you live, mm-hmm. but also critical of mm-hmm. issues that are going on within it and that have come before us, issues that have been hundreds of years now, mm-hmm. uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I feel like if someone raises the idea of like, yes, okay, let's be, we can celebrate Canada Day, but also let's remember, like some people will take flack for that, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this isn't the time. Well, no, it very much is the time. If we're not critical of ourselves and our history, how on earth are we going to improve? Mm-hmm. Thus far, there are so many things we still have to improve, especially with our like with indigenous communities. I don't want to say our indigenous people because yes, don't indigenous use the possessive. people. Thank that's you. right. Indigenous people are their own community and right. so it's it's a constant I, I i'm always trying to you know check myself and and try to make sure that using respectful terminology but yeah i feel like there's a a real sense of you can't do both celebrate and also be critical but i i, I don't know i think that's the very nature of what we should strive for as humans mm-hmm. you know even like in school and things like yes you did this this wonderfully well in your essay here's where you need to improve it's sort of the same principle but just with greater stakes far greater human stakes mm-hmm. in terms of that critical and i'm eye. i'm with you on that yeah um you can absolutely be patriotic mm-hmm. um and you can love canada mm-hmm. um but by the same token, you can say, hey, this is not okay. Yeah. And um, I think one of the things with being patriotic is you have to uh, really reflect on what it is you're being patriotic about. That's right. Are you proud of Canada mm-hmm. and its treatment of Indigenous people? And I'm not. Right. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of work, uh, a lot of work to be done, um, and the work doesn't need to be done by Indigenous folks. Right. I think um, it's time that non-Indigenous folks step up and start checking one another. I want to follow up on that, but we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Francis on London Live. Welcome back to the program. We're chatting with Frances Elizabeth Moore. She's an Indigenous activist and the Operations and National Outreach Manager for We Matter. Now, before the break, you were speaking about the need for non-Indigenous people to start challenging one another when they see or hear something that's like problematic. Now, I know you have more to say about that. And when can we do that challenging? The perfect time for this is your big family gatherings yeah. where your problematic uncle says something really racist about... Indigenous folks on how um, I'll use for an example from my from my Twitter that the only parties that we would vote for would be the ones that give us money. Um, yeah, that's just so offensive. And oh, I'm just like, terrible. you're not even trying to hide yeah. that that's problematic. Yeah, this is something that you actually truly believe. Yeah. Um, and with that, it's for me, anyways. It's like, do I? Do I try to educate this person on how incorrect mm. that is? Do I even attempt? Is it worth? Um, however, because that's my, that's my life. Mm-hmm. This, th- I kind of have those situations daily. Um, but you don't. Right. So if you took on your racist uncle yeah. or problematic auntie and said, hey, that's really not okay for you to say. Mm-hmm. They're actually going to listen to you because – they love and care you for you. Right. Whereas I'm just a stranger and I'm part of that group. So, of course, I'm going to say, oh, that's not us. Yeah. Now, stereotypes are stereotypes and sometimes they are there, you know, because of certain situations. But that doesn't mean that they apply to to a large portion Absolutely. of individuals. And I can't 
tell you how many times I've been brushed off or um, put down uh, with something that doesn't apply to me. It's mm-hmm. just a stereotype. Right. So addressing some of those things right off the top yeah. is a good way to start, but also opening up your circle and getting to know Indigenous folks because yeah. um, as as <laughs> sad as it is, if you if you know somebody – you're more likely to take an invested interest Absolutely. in their life and what happens to them yeah. um, and learn from bits and pieces of, of their experiences. Absolutely. I, I mean, that's the biggest thing, right? Because if you are isolated from any any group of individuals, like I, I often will think also of uh, the situation in the States right now with um, the camps at the border mm-hmm. and so many people who don't, I mean, now we're seeing more and more images coming out of those, out of those just disgraceful institutions. Um, and it's, it's, I'm glad that we're seeing more and more that we've got individuals like AOC who are mm-hmm. down there, uh, Congress people who are going in and taking pictures when they're not supposed to be. But thank God for that because otherwise people would not believe what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy, as you said, that for people to just turn a blind eye when it doesn't apply to them. It's like, mm-hmm. eh, uh, it's not me. I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm a citizen, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, one of these days, those policies are going to turn on you. And when we're, where will we be then? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's one of those oldest quotes that I, I can't exactly remember, but it's like, if I, I did nothing when they came for this group and this group and this group, and, and when they came, they came for, me, for me, no mm-hmm. one was left. So, you know, I just feel like we just need to be so much more understanding and open to listening and, and, and just just open your eyes, <laughs> look around and, and try to see things from a different perspective because there's nothing that frustrates me more than when someone is looking through only one lens and they refuse to step out of themselves mm-hmm. and be like, oh, I should probably look at this a different way. Yes, I agree with everything that you're saying. <laughs> um, I think the other thing when it comes to what's happening at the border um, that you have to take into consideration is um, the states is a colonial government, just right. like Canada is yep. a colonial government. Um, the folks in Mexico are indigenous mm-hmm. to that land and the border did not cross. They don't cross the border. The border crossed them. Mm-hmm. Those lines weren't in place. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're cousins. They're, they're our relations. Um, and it just, it saddens me that we treat them um, as if they are less than mm-hmm. Um you know, they the term illegal I don't like. Yeah. Um, because how can you be illegal on stolen land? And yeah. it's just so tough to see that happening and know that we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Um and know that what is happening to those families and those youth, it will be what we feel now yeah. later. Yeah. Um, with residential school systems, these kids are taken. They are essentially in um, – I know folks don't <laughs> like the terms, but they're they're, they're concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and their they're experience, they're torn away from their families. They are, um, you know, not provided enough food or water, clothing, sh- and, you know, yeah. bedding, Basic all of those essentials. pieces. And when you want to boil it down, those things – happened at residential school. So as these youth grow and become adults, Mm -hmm. um, they're going to carry a lot of the same trauma that our community carries. And that's that just where my heart breaks because we didn't learn. 
Yeah. We did not have to be in this situation. We're no. just repeating history. Uh, Francis, I feel like we could we could talk at length so much more about this. And mm-hmm. I know you've got you've got other things that you need to do today, but I, I can't express my thanks enough for you coming in to talk about this because I know there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into it. Mm-hmm. So thank you oh, for doing welcome. this and sharing with us. And uh, I hope that our listeners have, you know, had some food for thought mm-hmm. about our celebrations. And like you said, go ahead. If this is something that is important to you, celebrate Canada Day but keep a critical eye on what we're doing so that we can improve for the future and we don't keep mistake, like making the same mistakes of the past. And I think it's also important to add to that, that if folks are vocal in mm-hmm. not celebrating, just just leave them be. Yeah. Um, I don't want to, nobody really wants to get into an argument on why, no. why they don't or don't celebrate. Um, but being respectful of that is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Francis, thank you again. And uh, uh, as always, a pleasure talking with you. Uh, Chimigwich. Thanks, Jess. Chimigwich to you. So lots to ponder there, Londoners, London listeners. Um, yeah, I'm, again, grateful, very, very grateful to Francis for taking uh, some time out of her day to talk with us about that because it is, it's a lot. It's a lot to talk about. And as I said in that interview, it's a lot of emotional labor. And uh, I appreciate any time any interview guest, uh, you know, takes time out of their day to, to chat with me about whatever the topic is, but especially in this case when it's it's such a such an emotional and in, ingrained um, issue that we're talking about. So, uh, again, many, many thanks to Francis. So we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, efforts in the city to fight human trafficking and specifically how that impacts our young people in the city. The Salvation Army is doing a bit of a... I guess a, a session, if you will, for for kids and uh, their parents and caregivers, and it's all in the hopes of heading off people being sucked into human trafficking, which obviously we have a big issue with in in the 401 corridor in our area, specifically in London. London police are working hard to try and fight back against this heinous practice, and uh, we're going to talk with Aura Burdett. She's an outreach worker with the Sally Ann and also the voluntary chair for the London Anti-Human Trafficking Committee. We're going to find out more about what they've got planned uh, for parents and kids at this session that's coming up in the fall. And also just in general, learning a bit more about the red flags that we can all watch for in terms of someone's behavior to see if they are in trouble or they could be getting into trouble and, and how we can help them prevent that. So that's coming up after the one thirty news with the lovely Jacqueline LaBelle, who is preparing all the news of the day for you. That's coming up right here on 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 1.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Partly cloudy skies, 27 degrees still. Feels like 34 with the humidity. It's not quite hot enough for a warning, but Environment Canada has issued a special weather statement for London Middlesex as a hot and humid air mass hits the brakes over the region. The forecast is calling for highs around 30, feeling like 40 with the humidity until a cold front moves in on Friday. Overnight lows tonight and tomorrow are expected to only drop to 20 and 21, providing some relief from the heat. The weekend, however, looks wonderful with highs in the mid-20s and mostly sunny skies. Ontario will get 50 new cannabis retail stores starting in October, and eight of them will be on First Nations reserves. The provincial government announced today that it would hold a lottery for the remaining 42 retail store authorizations. Previously, 25 operators were chosen to open the province's first legal brick-and-mortar cannabis stores, but some of them weren't ready to open on time. 
For this lottery, the government says there will be pre-qualification requirements to ensure the readiness of applicants. Organizers of the highly anticipated Roxodus Music Festival say the event has been canceled. The event, which boasted a lineup with Aerosmith, Kid Rock, Nickelback, Leonard Skinnerd, announced the cancellation of the four-day show for Clearview Township this morning. It was scheduled for July 11th to 14th. Quote, during the past couple of months, our venue at Edenvale Airport has battled tremendous rainy weather that has impacted our ability to produce the festival, organizers said on social media. They say with a heavy heart, they announced the cancellation of the Roxodus Music Festival. Information about ticket refunds will be released shortly. Boeing has announced it will provide $100 million to help pay the living expenses and cover the hardships suffered by the families of those killed in two crashes of its 737 MAX planes. The 346 victims include 18 Canadians killed in the March crash of a MAX 8 in Ethiopia. Boeing faces dozens of lawsuits and is incurring major losses because the MAX jets have been grounded worldwide since March. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the show. It is your Wednesday afternoon edition. Looking outside the window here that we have in the studio. Looks like a really nice day out there. Blue sky, a little bit of cloud, lots of sunshine. It is hot, though. Oof, as you've heard from the 980 CFPL newsroom, we are under a special weather statement because of the heat and the humidity. Sitting at 26 degrees right now, feeling like 34 with that humidex, which is very muggy. But I'm not going to complain because it was not that long ago that we were just drenched in wet, cold weather. Don't want to think about that. Anyway, just keep in mind it's nice and warm out there. And that's that's a good thing as we are into July now. Well, even though we are in July, our next topic is going to cast an eye forward a little bit. Don't get mad at me. We're going to talk about something that's coming up in October, but really it is an issue that is uh, evergreen, if you will. It's uh, something that is impacting this area of the province and quite honestly, like across Canada. Uh, It's human trafficking and the need for communities to do better in terms of uh, making sure that we are protecting people from falling into the trap of human trafficking. And so joining me on the line now to talk about that is Aura Burdett, and she's an outreach worker from the Salvation Army and voluntary chair for the London Anti-Human Trafficking Committee. And uh, she's here to chat with us about how we can try and prevent uh, our youth from falling into uh, this just a god-awful heinous crime and also uh you know some some initiatives that are going on one specific one uh in the city that will hopefully prepare families to deal with this topic aura thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this really important program thank you so aura in your work with the salvation army as an outreach worker and also as the the voluntary chair of the anti-human trafficking uh, uh group we're ta- we're seeing obviously in london an uptick in this activity and perhaps maybe not uh, an overall uptick maybe it's just more we're more aware of it now it's more in the public consciousness um but officers and local workers are, are really doing what they can to try and stop human trafficking and that includes the work of the salvation army Yes, it does. And I think part of why we're seeing more is there is more media awareness. There is more awareness in the general community, and also the police are um, more actively laying charges, and that information is getting out to the public. So there's a lot more awareness around it. Uh, But I also believe that we're only seeing a very small portion of what's actually going on. 
Absolutely. There must be much more that lies beneath the surface, sadly. Um, now, what's going on with the Salvation Army is that you're trying to, to arm parents and young people with the tools to try and uh, detect when this is starting, to try and head off uh, having kids, uh, young people pulled into human trafficking in the first place. And, and you're running a, a, a seminar or like a course of some kind, a, a session in the fall, correct? That's right. Uh, we are going to run just a two-hour evening program for the community out in uh, the southeast end of London. So it's going to be held on October 22nd from 7 until 9 p.m. at the Westminster Park Salvation Army Community Church. That's on Southdale and Millbank. Now that is hopefully targeting youth ages 16 and up and their parents, caregivers, and teachers. So that would hopefully get that information out to that age group. But we have also, this is Salvation Army, we've also gone out to talk to youth in schools, community groups, uh, other agencies like the Youth Opportunities Unlimited here in London, and we've partnered with other agencies in order to bring awareness to clients and staff. Absolutely. And, and so, Aura, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the, the work that you're doing, the types of things that you're trying to alert parents, young people to, caregivers, uh, you know, different organizations, teachers, as you mentioned. What are some of the red flags that we should be on the lookout for? Well, the red flags may appear to be, could be, could be a lot of different things that it can hide under. So it may look like the, the youth is dropping out of school, maybe getting involved with drugs or, or um, you know, uh, maybe show some mental health issues or emotional issues. And it may not be completely obvious that this person is being manipulated by an older person, a pimp or trafficker. And it may appear that the youth has gotten involved in with older friends or an older friend that they're more secretive about. They may, um, there may be drugs involved, but not always. There may be um, a lot of mood changes, aggression, or maybe depression. It could be uh, leaving, you know, leaving school early, skipping school. If they're not in school, there could be, they could be acting out at home or, or um, being less being more reluctant to get involved in things that they used to enjoy, that kind of thing. So all of those trouble signs could be masking a lot, a host of problems, but it also could be indicators that someone outside of the family circle and the trusted friends might be manipulating that youth in, in order to exploit them. Now, I guess if it weren't, you know, scary enough to try or to, to, I guess, start to recognize those red flags in, you know, in your loved one, a a young person in your family, I I would imagine that it would be so daunting uh, to try and address those issues with them because teenagers, they're going through a tough time at, at, you know, Mm -hmm. the base level. It's It's a rough time of life. They're trying to figure out who they are to kind of find their path. And then if you add in this sort of obstacle and a very real challenge and dangerous um, uh, thing that they could be going through that's not easy for a parent or a caregiver to try and address with them. Do you have any tips on, on how they can kind of broach the subject? Well, if they have a good relationship with their child already, with their youth, then keep that communication open, keep it, uh, keep those discussions matter-of-fact and non-judgmental, um, 
make sure that the youth knows that they're loved and supported and heard, that they are accepted regardless of the, whatever they're dealing with, and that there's an openness to, to really have those some difficult conversations without judgment because what the youth may be dealing with is someone who is trying to tell, you know, trying to instill blame and shame, make the youth feel that they're responsible for the trouble that they're in so that they don't report, um, make them feel bad for what they're experiencing so that they won't tell anybody about what's going on with them. So there, there could be some very deliberate manipulation going on to make the youth uh, unwilling to go to people that they would normally trust and respect to for help. Um, the parents may want to bring in a trusted uh, professional or a trusted family member that the youth has a good relationship with to try and help to navigate those conversations. Um, if there is, if if the youth is unwilling to to open up about those things, then it might just be a good idea to have discussions that aren't directed at the youth, but about the subject of human trafficking and predators and and online safety and what are safe relationships, what are unsafe relationships, what are the ploys that a trafficker might use to manipulate and and exploit a young person. Generally, what they do is they try to create an artificial relationship where the youth feels that they're falling in love, that they're being, that they, and that's part of the grooming process to get the child, the youth away from the people that they love and respect now into, into the traffickers, um, realm so that the trafficker can manipulate them and exploit them without the parents or family knowing what's going on. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, when you talk about these these situations and um, just it's overwhelming to think that uh, some so many youth in our community and across the country and internationally, you know, they, they are facing these horrific situations. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel for any any family that's trying to grapple with this and make sure a uh, mm-hmm. that their kids don't fall into this trap and also the ones that have been involved, that they're trying to extract them from it. Um, once yeah. they have spoken to their kids and uh, and and they've, they've kind of given them a better idea of what's going on, what should parents do then? Is it, is it just like a, a call immediately to the, to the police, or what's, kind of, what's a best practice for what they should do next? If a youth does disclose, and it's, it's, it takes a long time for a youth or for anyone to come up and actually disclose what's going on because they feel so much shame and embarrassment around it, but when the, if they do disclose, then it's really important that they're believed, that they're supported, that they get the professional help in place for counseling, because a lot of a lot of people once they've been trafficked, once they've been exploited, and and generally it's for exploitation in the sex trade, so um, that creates a whole host of traumatic experiences for the young person, um, which can crop up in future relationships and and really the the young person needs counseling and ongoing support in order to overcome what has happened to them. Absolutely. Well, Aura, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insight and educate us about what to look for, those red flags, and I hope that the session in October goes really well. Thank you very much. Okay, so we need to take a quick break. When we come back... I'm going to tell you what is going on in Denver right now. They have a goose problem. Canada geese. 
Apparently there's a big old flock of them. <laughs> they have so many, in fact, that they have looked for ways to try to get them out of the city, get out of town. But they have settled on a cull, unfortunately, which is sad. But we'll explain what they're going to do as this goes on, because the cull involves uh, at least, I mean, it's kind of good that they're going to be using the meat for something. We'll explain what they're going to do with the meat, the whole process, uh, coming up after this break on uh, London Live. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program on this Wednesday afternoon. I am, in fact, your guest host. Uh, Mike is on vacation this week. Well deserved. He needs some time off because he works so gosh darn hard. He does. So we chatted on Friday about his vacation and he was joking that he was going to sit in the hammock in his backyard. Then he said that he's not quite sure if he actually has a hammock. So hopefully he located one so that he can relax because he needs it. He deserves it. We all need a vacation every once in a while, especially in the summer. It's good to go out and uh, enjoy the nice weather. Sunfest is coming up this weekend. That's going to be nice. Yeah, I think it's like the 25th year as well. It's a nice big anniversary for them. Congratulations to Sunfest. And as always, big, great lineup going on. It's fantastic. And of course, that always happens in Victoria Park. Victoria Park doesn't usually have a lot of geese in it. Huh? See what I did there? Nice segue. Yeah, yeah. geese, parks, yeah. <laughs> well, in Denver, they're dealing with a big issue with geese in their parks they're taken over by all accounts. They have like thousands of geese and the population is just, it has like exploded over the last number of years. They've been trying, I think, for 15 years to kind of get the geese thing under control. And unfortunately, everything that they've tried hasn't really seemed to work. So city officials estimate there that there are some 5,000 Canada geese living in Denver. That's a lot of geese. Now, their parks department has been struggling. I'm reading from a, a global article here, Global News. Uh, they've been struggling to contain the pesky and aggressive birds for more than 15 years. That's according to their website. The geese have been taking over golf courses, pooping all over park grounds, devouring local plants, and threatening citizens whenever they get close. Now, Londoners are familiar with the hazards that geese pose. Anyone that's up at Western's campus uh, knows that sometimes you have to like detour around. I have friends that live in the downtown core uh, around Colburn and uh, and York in that area. There are some geese families that like to hang out there in the spring with their with their goslings. And if you get a little too close, well, Mama Goose, well, she gets she gets mad. Not like Mother Goose. She's pretty chill. But Mama Goose, yeah, they hiss. I remember back in high school when I ran cross country for a couple of years, we would have meets at Springbank Park. And not only did you have to watch out for the goose poop on the ground as you're running, because who wants that on your running shoes? Uh, but you also had to watch out for the geese themselves because they would hiss at you. And you're just like, you're running along the course that's been marked out by the officials. It's like you're minding your own business. But the geese, they just go where they want because the whole park is their land. And that's fair. Nature, you do your thing. But yeah, it can it can definitely be a little dicey as you're trying to stay on the good side of the geese. But here's what Denver is doing. And essentially, they're culling. And they've started this. So that means they are kind of rounding up the geese as of July the 1st, which is kind of funny that it was Canada Day and Canada geese. Uh, they, I guess, rounded up about 300 of these of these birds and it's allowed, totally allowed, but it's supposed to be a last ditch resort in terms of uh, keeping a keeping a lid on the population of these birds. So would you like to know what they're doing with the geese, the geese meat, goose meat, I should say? Well, the birds will be killed 
and the meat is going to be distributed to charitable organizations and wildlife rehab centers. Ah, okay. Which, when I first heard this, I was like, aye, we talked about it in the newsroom. And it just kind of felt icky. And I thought, okay, why does it feel icky? Is it because Canada geese are kind of iconic here, especially in Canada? And I just, I couldn't imagine, like, a hunt of Canada geese. I don't know. It just, it felt very strange. And then the idea of of it being distributed as actual meat, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But the more I thought about it, it kind of, it, it does make sense. I mean, like, it's a wild animal. There's too many of them. Official scientists have said that this is, it's too much in the area, not good for the ecology of the area. And, you know, it's, it is an issue in terms of uh, the, um, the functioning of the city, I suppose. I don't really like the argument that people complained about the goose poop. I don't think that's a valid reason for getting rid of, uh, of the geese or, or culling their population. But the other issues, the aggressiveness and the ecology of the area, those I will certainly accept from uh, scientific officials that that's an issue for sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I just thought, I don't know how I feel about that. It's a little, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And I feel bad about it. So, but at least... It's good that the meat is going to an appropriate usage. Like it's not going to waste because that would just be adding insult to injury. At least it's going to be used uh, in a productive manner to help people. That is good. And as officials have said, like they were not trying to get rid of all the geese in the city. Uh, They're just trying to manage a more healthy population in the park system. And so we've heard about, you know, different culls of animal life that happen here in Canada, even uh, different populations of, of, uh, of animals. Sometimes you have to do that for the health of the overall environment, I suppose. And uh, officials in Denver, you know, they, as I mentioned before, they've tried other non-lethal tactics for curbing the Canada goose population. They've dipped eggs in oil to prevent them from hatching, which just seems sad, planted tall vegetation to limit space for the birds to graze, and deployed noisemaker devices that scare the birds away. Sort of reminds me of airports when they have too many birds, and so they have dogs that they have out on patrol on the runways, and they give them little little goggles, or doggles, I like to call them because that's fun. And then they run when there's like a bunch of birds, like a flock of them on the runways, they set them out and they run and they clear them away. Now, with thousands upon thousands of geese, I guess that would not be so effective unless you got everyone in the city of Denver who had a dog <laughs> to go out to the parks. But again, geese are not afraid. They are they are feisty. So I don't really know how effective that would be. But it is it is unfortunate. Now, a report by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says killing Canada geese for meat is an acceptable last resort for population control, but only during the molting season. So that's like in the spring. And that's in overpopulated urban areas. And the molting season means that the birds can't fly. So they can catch them that way, which also makes me feel a bit sad. Ugh. Feels like they're being trapped. But it's allowed. Mm. The report says culling geese is an immediate and effective solution, although it is sometimes more socially controversial than other techniques. I'd say so. So my question is, would goose meat bother you? Or is it the same as anything else like venison? You know, some people have more exotic meats that they try. Would it bug you eating goose meat, knowing that it came from a cull? I don't know. Would it? That's my question. I don't know. If you want to call in and talk to me about whether this is just, you know, an ick factor because we're not used to the idea of goose meat, that's cool. If you think that it's, if it's weird, give me a call. 
you can call me. 643-2222. 519-643-2222. Or if you're out of town, 1-866-354-8255. That's 1-866-354-8255. Or you can even tweet me. We're multi-platform here. You can tweet at me, Jess Brady 980 Ooh, we have a call. Oh, you are very quick to talk about this, London. This is exciting. Hold on. Let me see here. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. What's your What's your take on goose meat? I've killed geese before. Yeah? And ducks and grouse. and uh, Geese take a lot of preparation. Oh, yeah? And uh, But go to Byron and walk around. Well, you know that nice old church is? We had a wedding there last year. Oh, that's nice. It was, well, of course it was nice, but the thing is, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, it was covered with goose poop the whole area. Yeah, it's true. That's, Spring Bank Park. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we've created in this area is a is a paradise for goose reproduction. And if you go around the small little storm drainage ponds that are around this town, they're all over the place. This year they've had good production. Last year was bad spring, and they didn't have. They call it recruitment now. If they have birds, they mm-hmm. have young recruitment. You know. I'm telling you, it just can't be reproduction or anything. So you got to change all the terms to confuse people. But uh, the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of goose hunting going on on husbands. As long as there's geese, guys yeah. will, and some women will hunt geese, as whether well deer will hunt deer. Sure. And that's the, that's the way it is. But I just like to think that a lot of people who are raised in away from that situation don't really know where their food comes from. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Ted. You you are bang on, and I apologize I didn't say your name off the hop there. Uh, but yeah, you're. I, I, I'm, it's the thing is that is that uh, uh, I enjoy, I I can't hunt anymore because I'm not physically capable of it. But so I, I but I run around watching things and. Uh, What's happened is Jack Miner created the goose population in southern Ontario, and uh, they, they expanded out and became a, and then they had a season on them. Around about 1980s, 75 to 80, when we hunted ducks, we hardly saw a goose, but gradually they've taken over, and that's just the way it is. Well, Ted, I thank you very much for your call this afternoon and for giving that perspective. <laughs> What's that? Goose paradise and their great parents. We should learn from them. There you go. Bye. All right. All right. Well, thanks very much, Ted. You have a great day. All right. So we've got one pro goose call from Ted. And next up, I think we have Mike on the line. Hey, Mike, what's your take on this? Hi. Hey. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. So these taste fine. They're kind of like if you took a bodybuilder versus a couch potato, you'd have a goose versus a chicken. It's, uh, geese are extremely toned because they got to fly from one continent to another yeah or from half a continent so their meat's a lot more chewy you don't want to just suck them on the barbecue but if you uh marinate them or put them in a crock pot they're totally fine okay all right i like this we're getting some recipe ideas even <laughs> and as far as uh browning them up them up and uh knocking them off and uh needing reasons. Uh, goose soup is also uh, part of what raises the salmonella or uh, yeah, salmonella levels in the lake. Yeah. So 
uh, I think the goose poop is a good enough reason to be trying to work their numbers down. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point, Mike. And uh, I'll say this, that uh, in the article they were talking about how uh, people were complaining about when they went to the park, they couldn't put down a blanket because there was poop on the ground, which I myself would not enjoy either. I mean, I'd, I would try and look for a poop-free zone to put down my blanket. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There would certainly be actual legit health concerns about water contamination. So that's a really good point to raise. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the call in, Mike. I appreciate it. And thanks again to Ted uh, for uh, letting us know about their thoughts on the goose meat conversation. Hmm. All right. I like it. Good perspectives. Well, we need to take a break for the two o'clock news. When we come back, we're talking about London's downtown Wi-Fi that was provided for free uh, through downtown London. It is no more. We're going to talk to Jeanette McDonald, the manager of downtown London. She's going to tell us why that is the case. Explain a little more. That's coming up on 980 CFPL and London Live. Welcome back to the program. This is indeed London Live on your Wednesday afternoon. Busy show so far. We're into the second hour. It's flown by. So our next topic that we're talking about uh, might be something that you yourself have used in the downtown core in the past, uh, let's say, eight years. The free Wi-Fi that was provided by downtown London uh, is no more. We've learned this week that the London Area Wireless Network, it was provided by Start.ca, and it was in place since like 2011. Uh, but downtown London made the announcement uh, this week that uh, no more. It's it's become too expensive, and it's not really, I mean, value for money isn't there. That's what downtown London is saying. So joining me on the line right now is Jeanette McDonald, and she's the general manager of downtown London. Jeanette, thanks so much, first of all, for taking some time out of your vacation to come on and talk about this. <laughs> No problem, Jess. I'll learn not to put my name on a media release when I come to That's a good one. That's a good one. But yeah. we are thankful that you did. <laughs> no problem. So no problem. I guess, first of all, tell me a little bit about uh, the network that was in place. Like, uh, personally, I had no idea that we did have this, but I, I could have been living under a rock, which is very possible. So for anyone who wasn't aware, tell me a little bit about this system that was in place. Well, we we decided... It seems like forever ago, like you're right, it was about 2010 when we were talking about this. There there wasn't, like data was very expensive mm-hmm. and there wasn't a free outdoor, now this is an outdoor Wi-Fi, so that's probably why you, you, you didn't catch it, but um, with, there was nothing free for outdoor. We wanted to keep, there's a lot of tech companies coming into the downtown at the time, and we wanted to keep them down by, you know, hopefully providing them free Wi-Fi. And then... Then we found out we're getting World Figure Skating Championships. So the city partnered with us on some of the Meraki units uh, to extend the free wi- the outdoor free Wi-Fi so the people visiting from all the other countries so they could find out where the restaurants were, was on the menus, you know, where to go and how to get around the downtown. So we, we found value in it for that. And that's really why it, why it started. But, uh, I mean, the demand on it has been pretty high and therefore it gets slow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's been we get more complaints about it than we get compliments. And it's really, really expensive to bring it up to snuff. Okay, And so uh, roughly, if you can tell me, uh, what was the cost associated with it? Maybe like when it started out and and where we had reached that kind of uh, watermark where you're like, "Ah, okay, we need to we need to maybe put a pull the plug, if you will. Well, when when it started out, it was like somewhere in the neighborhood of like, Thirty or thirty-five thousand, which we found fairly valuable, and you know, then the city like pretty much doubled our our investment. Actually, it was thirty for the equipment, maybe 
That's a long time ago. Probably about <laughs> seventy five thousand and then the city matched that. So it was about hundred and fifty thousand over the three years to to bring it up to the world figure skating standard. But if we had to if we had to keep it going through twenty twenty, we're looking at a cost of almost a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And we just don't have that in our budget. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess mm-hmm. my next question would be, do you have stats on how many people were actually using it so that it would really kind of, you know, showcase, uh, you know, the value for the money, how many people would be using it for that amount, which is quite hefty, as you said. Yeah, we, I don't, you know, that's one thing I don't have in front of me. I just have the, I just have the numbers in front of me for like how much it costs. Mm-hmm. And um, there was, I would say there was probably, I'm guessing here, because uh, I did look at them a bit, a bit two months ago when we decided to shut it down. Um, probably there was likely at any given time, you know, maybe a thousand users. But the trouble is they, we, we know what they were using it for. Yeah. Netflix, Facebook, YouTube. I mean, that's not putting people in our stores. No, certainly not. And, you know, when we started it, you know, there wasn't very much downloading and streaming. I mean, it just That just wasn't happening then. You still went and rented DVDs, and you know. Mm. So, like, we've come a long way, baby, since since we first put it in. Yeah. And 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 honestly, it's it's not it's not in our mandate to provide technology. That's not what BIAs do. We were kind of on the cutting edge of this, and it was great when it started. But you know, most of the people who were involved in it at the start said it was terrific, but then it slowed down so much that it really wasn't of any value. Right. Yeah, as you said, more more complaints than compliments there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. it's like, you know, it's a tough decision to make when you you know, you design a cutting-edge program and a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into it and, and a lot of money. But, you know, the fact is it just it just isn't doing what it needs to do any longer. Right. There's and lots of free Wi-Fi downtown. That's true because there are a number of locations that yeah. do feature it, right? So, yeah. yeah. And has there been much reaction from, uh, you know, members of downtown London, different businesses? Anyone upset about it in particular? No, actually, um, a few of my staff were talking to some of the merchants, and uh, no, they weren't upset. It wasn't. It wasn't designed for the merchants to use. It was designed, you know, for clients to use. It was designed for clients to find where merchants were located and, and what they were offering. Right. So we and you know we we can't. We used to be able to make that connection when we had um, we had some data analysis on it, but that company sold out to Yelp, and we weren't getting that analysis any longer. So, I mean, there's another reason not to have it. If we can't, you know, even if we can't provide a great service, if we can get some data, that would be worthwhile. But we can't even do that anymore. Right. Yeah. No. It. I. I see the. I see the argument. There. Is there any? I guess. Uh, plans for moving forward, then what might that money be redistributed to to be used for? Because uh, as you as you mentioned, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of money and a line item in the budget. Um, any any plans for what it could go towards instead? Then, well, the line item in the budget this year was not one hundred and sixteen thousand, which is why we're not spending that. <laughs> right. You know, so the line item in the budget was far less than that. So, I mean, lots of opportunities like will present themselves, but generally speaking. Any excess we have in any of our budget lines when I'm marketing the downtown. All right. Well, as you mentioned, you know uh, it's uh, there are other spots in the in the city where people can kind of kind of plug into that free Wi-Fi, Covent Garden Market. I'm pretty sure that the London Library also obviously has computers first of all, and then they they believe they have Wi-Fi as well there. They that, have Wi-Fi. Yeah. yeah. So does City Plaza. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and most of our most of our restaurants and stores would have some Wi-Fi. Yeah, it just kind of it kind of comes along with when you get a, a service provider, mm-hmm. you get a free Wi-Fi for your guests. So yeah, 
Well, I mean, it's it's the rolling with the times, I guess, rolling with the punches, changing with the, the times. And as technology develops, I guess we have to also be responsive and, and do the same. Exactly. Now it's over to the cities and see what they can do for the future. It's, it's wonderful. They've lots of plans for smart cities connectivity. So we'll, let's see what the city's going to do and I think it'll be great. All right. Well, Jeanette McDonald, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate you again taking time out of your vacation to, to come on and chat with us. No problem. That's great talking to you. You as well. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. So there you have it. No more London downtown Wi-Fi, the London Area Wireless Network. But that's okay, because as as we heard from Jeanette, it, it really does kind of make sense when you look at uh, value for money. Most people do have data on their phones now, and uh, you know we have a number of locations across the downtown core that do have free Wi-Fi that's available. So it makes sense. Let's put that money towards other uses. Good call, I think. All right, we need to take a quick break. When we come back... We're going to be talking about Roxidus. Now, if you've been listening to the news at all today, you would have heard it certainly with Jacqueline LaBelle in the middays. Uh, and it's uh, it's bad news for anyone who had tickets for this this concert um, festival. It's, uh, yeah, not great. <laughs> Just looking at some of the latest updates from Global News right now. And it turns out that the OPP has confirmed that they're actually investigating the company behind this festival. We're going to talk in detail about the festival itself and what was going on. But like some of the people that were in the lineup, some of the bands, Aerosmith, Kid Rock, Nickelback. Yeah, big names. This was all supposed to be happening up in Clearview Township at Edenvale Airport. And uh, news came down like this morning, essentially, that uh, it's been canceled. There are tons of questions left unanswered right now, which is not great for anyone who had tickets. And these things were not cheap. Passes to this festival, which was supposed to be like July 11th through the 14th. uh, Yeah, very, very pricey. So we're going to talk to Alan Cross. The famous Alan Cross, music journalist, writer, uh, he's going to come on and uh, chat with us coming up after this break about what's going on, what he knows about it, because he had some uh, initial involvement with it. And uh, he was just as blindsided as everybody else. He's written a piece on Global News on the website and uh, where he talks about what he knows, which is not much more than any of the rest of us do. Uh, so we're going to talk with Alan Cross, which is really exciting that he's coming on the show to, to give us the lowdown on what he knows. And uh, we'll find out more about Roxidus. Exodus from its plans for a festival at uh, in the GTA area. So that's coming up and more on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program on this Wednesday afternoon in the beautiful city of London. We've had a very busy show so far. Before the break, I told you that we were going to talk about uh, some news that broke, I believe it was this morning, about a festival that was set to be happening July 11th through the 14th, is very soon, called Roxidus. Yeah. Bad news if you had tickets for Roxidus. It is no more. Yeah. It was set to be held at the Edenvale Airport. And uh, news came down this morning from organizers saying allegedly that bad weather, consistently bad weather, had hampered, I guess, efforts to get the site ready. And uh, they were canceling it. So there are a lot of questions right now about what's gone on. And uh, Global News is reporting that they've confirmed with the OPP that they're actually investigating the company behind the festival right now. Not many details have been uh, released regarding that. Uh, OPP have basically said, we're not going to say anything else until there's something, if there's something concrete that comes out of these initial inquiries, I suppose. But uh, certainly concerning. 
And joining me on the line right now, it's really an honor to have him on with us, is Alan Cross, music journalist. And on his Twitter bio, I love this. It says he describes himself as a professional music geek. And uh, certainly if you've listened to radio in Canada, you have heard Alan Cross. And uh, he joins me now on the line. Alan, thanks so much for taking a, a few minutes to chat with me today. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, the news about Roxidis, I know our guys on FM 96 were talking about it this morning as well, obviously, uh, shocking to a lot of people because things seem to be chugging along quite nicely, eh? Well, they were. Um, I was hired in the beginning to be a media spokesman for them, just to handle all the interviews about the festival itself. And I did that for a a couple of months before I kind of got sick. I had some kidney stone issues, so I kind of bowed out of a bunch of projects for the spring. But uh, I kept in touch with everything and with everyone, and everything seemed to be going absolutely fine. In fact, the last time I talked to one of the principals was back on June the 11th. And I asked about ticket sales, I asked about, I asked about uh, site preparation, I asked about uh, logistics and everything else, and I was led to believe, and the guy was very, very confident, nope, everything's fine. Everything's going just as we expected it to go. Hmm. So, fantastic. Uh, so we'll talk about uh, what I'm going to be doing at the festival next week. Yep, we will. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to be the stage MC for the entire thing. And then uh started hearing some rumbles over the weekend that things were not well, which culminated with the release of the press release this morning saying that the festival was canceled. Uh, right now, there were far, far, far more questions than answers. And I cannot even for the life of me begin to tell you what went wrong. It's it's stunning, honestly. And uh, I mentioned uh, before the break that you you've done a, a really great piece on uh, Global News on on the website, uh, just asking you know what went wrong and, and kind of going over the timeline uh, that you've described just now, and that it, it really did seem that everything was running tickety boo, no problems, and we had massive acts that were uh, already booked for this. Everyone was confirmed. You said in, in your piece that like the money was rolling out as as it should have. So yeah. it really was a stunning collapse. Well, this is the first year for a festival, so one of the things you have to do is buy credibility. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is if you're going to book acts, you've got to pay everything up front. You're not going to go to William Morris or CAA and say, hey, uh, I'm a new promoter and I want to book your acts. Uh, they're going to be a little bit wary, especially for a festival, unless they put their money where their mouth is. So that's what happens. That, that's how this, this lineup came together. All these acts, I have been told, were paid in advance. Uh, you know, and when I was doing some work for them, I would file an invoice and, you know, two days later I'd get my check. So everything seemed to be going along fine from a financial point of view, which would be, of course, everybody's main concern. Uh, but obviously something, something's gone, gone, you know, went really, really weird last week. And, uh, I did try to, to contact people, uh, at the festival office and, uh, I got nothing back. Hmm. You know, it just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, until until we saw the thing this morning. Wild. You know what it reminds me of, like, in, in everyday life, when, you, when you're when you dealing with someone and everyone's been, like, really consistent, and then all of a sudden there's a change in the pattern, and you're like, oh, that's weird. Well, maybe it's just a blip. And then another thing happens, and you're like, uh-oh. Like, your gut starts to tell you, maybe all is not well. Yeah, and I got to emphasize that everything was extraordinarily consistent from November right through till June the June the eleventh. Yeah. Very consistent. I had no trouble getting hold of anybody. I had no trouble, um, you know, getting paid. I had no trouble uh, getting answers to questions. So yeah, um, it's just it's just uh, I, I, again I, I'm 
<laughs> I'm gobsmacked by the whole thing. Yeah, it's it seems wild. And like, I can only imagine uh, how, I guess, ticket holders are feeling because I was looking at, at the global um, uh, piece on it and they, they talk about how expensive these packages are. A four-day VIP pass costs 639 bucks, and that's not including taxes and fees. And like, I don't go to a lot of festivals, so I don't know how in the realm of, of normal that price is, but that's a lot of change for most people. It is. And, and you know what? Those are reasonable prices in the world of festivals these days, especially if you're getting a little bit more than just a spot in the field. Um, but yeah, you know what's happening with the refunds? Don't know. The information will be uh, uh, released at some point uh, going forward. That's wild. Yeah, it's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, a point that I thought was that was really great made by uh, the morning team over on FM 96, Taz and Jim, they're saying, like, we just had the stones, uh, but like Burles Creek, right? And it's it, some people may have made a choice between seeing the stones and going to Roxidus, and now they're like left out of both. <laughs> Yeah, and let's 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 remember that the Stones thing almost happened because everything was postponed for Mick Jagger's heart surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that did come off is is maybe considering he's seventy five a bit of a minor miracle. But um, you know, one of the things that the Roxas people were uh, concerned about was like the, the competition with the Rolling Stones, but that didn't seem to be a factor. Hmm. I just I I wonder if you know I mean it's probably no good to do any speculation at this point because no, we don't have any answers but it's we're, just we're, yeah. we're missing a huge we're missing a lot yeah an awful lot of information right now and again it's you know one of the reasons we uh, like I, I I didn't write anything uh, immediately is because I was trying to find some answers yeah but uh, eventually you know I couldn't couldn't had to get something out there yeah and the answer is we don't know anything yeah so. You know, running a festival, staging a festival, is a is a massive, massive undertaking, and it comes with tons of risk. And um, you, when you start a festival, you should be prepared to take a loss the first couple of years. I mean, Coachella, for example, biggest festival in in in, in the U.S., um, they lost money for you know five, six, seven years before they turned into what they are today. Wow. Yeah, that's that's wild. And like this company, MF Live Inc., um, like this obviously, as as, we, as we've said, was a first go around for Roxidis. But like, was this its first festival ever? Its first go at doing anything of this size? No, no, no. no. The, one of the organizers was uh, was uh, did some very very large bike rallies and and other events uh, in that general area of Ontario. Uh, but this was the first concert festival that they've ever done. Okay. So perhaps, I mean, again, speculation, but maybe they just were out of their depth. But, I mean, they put on a good front if that was the case for, for a lot of months. Well, yeah, from, uh, what was it, from from November until June the 11th, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Pretty good. That... And, and again, there were there were no red flags hmm. until until last month. Wow. Well, this is certainly a story that we're all going to be following very carefully. And I know you will as well, because, uh, you know, it's 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 shocking and, you know, uh, to have been involved with them. You feel betrayed, I'm sure. Well, I, I'm very disappointed because I was really looking forward to this. I thought these guys were, were really doing it right. Apparently not. I guess not. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and uh, some of your insight. And we'll, I'm sure we'll be following up with you as this, uh, as, as the story unfolds. And, and hopefully we get some more information for you and everyone involved and all the ticket holders. Yes, please. Absolutely. Well, if we hear anything, we'll be in touch with you. And, and <laughs> thank you again so much. Thanks a lot. Take care. So there you have it. Words from Alan Cross about this situation with Roxidis. 
Uh, not a lot of answers at this point, but uh, you can be sure that we at 980 CFPL and Global News in general will be following it uh, quite closely as uh, as the story develops. Fingers crossed we get some more information because it's it's pretty wild. It's 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 like the fire festival all over again. So anyway, that's that. We need to take a break for the 2.30 news with Jacqueline LaBelle. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the summer slide as we slide into summer. We'll explain what that is and what you can do to avoid it coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We are into our last half hour, folks. Where does this show go? Every time I host, it's Zoom. It just zooms by. So much stuff going on. We've had a busy sh- show so far. And before the break, I told you about the summer slide. Well, I teased it. I was like, we're going to talk about the summer slide. I'm going to explain what the summer slide is. Any guesses? Well, it has to do with education. And our young ones in elementary and high school uh, have just been out of class for not even like a week. We're coming up on a week. I think last Thursday was the last day of uh, classes for the elementary school kids. Uh, High schoolers were out a little earlier because they had their exams that wrapped up last week. And uh, our university students, well, gosh, they've been out since like end of April with their exams. Uh, But the summer slide refers to... uh, Basically like a regression in skills for elementary school kids uh, in between the last day of class and the first day of class when they go back in September. So it might be easy for them to kind of, you know, if they if they spend a lot of time outside playing around, doing all sorts of great activities, if they don't kind of keep up their skills from the school year, they might have a bit of a tougher time going back to class. Now, joining me on the line to explain more about this uh, summer slide and how we can prevent it is Professor Sharon Murphy, and she is a professor within the Faculty of Education at York University. Sharon, thank you so much for taking a few moments to talk with me this afternoon. Well, I'm actually delighted to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks again. And we're talking about uh, the summer slide, how to avoid it. And as I said off the top of the segment, uh, we're only like a little bit less than a week from the end, the official end of school. Uh, But some kids that I know of, some really motivated go-getters, you know, just fantastic kids, they're enrolled in summer school and doing other things to keep up their skills so that they can get ahead for next year. And that's kind of what you've looked at a little bit in, in terms of how we keep kids on the right track over their summer break. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I mean, there's a considerable amount of research. It goes back as long as 30 years ago to show that for some children, they lose as much as two months of their reading achievement levels over the summer. And by the time they end up in sixth grade, that reading loss can have amounted to anywhere from two to three years. That's wild. That's big. <laughs> yeah, that's a big difference. And and I can only imagine kind of the shock of when they go back to class uh, after their summer break. And it just, you know, everyone always feels a little bit sluggish when you're trying to get back into the groove of school. Uh, but if you've mm-hmm. lost that much over those two months, those eight weeks, I mean, it can really put you at a deficit as you're trying to play catch up. It certainly can. I mean, the sad thing is that these kids during the school year, and they're primarily kids from low socioeconomic status groups, But these kids during the school year, they have the same pace in terms of learning and achievement as their peers. It's just that during the summer, they don't have access 
to the same kinds of resources that their peers do, and that's how they fall behind. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's tougher for, for those different, uh, you know, those different groups to, to keep up and, and have those resources, as you've said. Now, what are some what are some ways that parents and, uh, you know, even even the kids that are motivated themselves who are who want to keep up their skills? What can they be doing over the break to kind of make sure that they're that they're, they're staying on pace on track? Well, we know from research that uh, there's one really significant research study that shows that if you give children 15 books a summer of their own choosing that aren't super, like they aren't too difficult for them to read, then in four years in a row, if you do that four years in a row, you can eliminate the summer slide. So what you can take from that is, number one, Children need to be reading books of their own choosing that aren't too difficult for them. Now, if a family is poor, where are they going to get the money to buy books? That's a difficult question, but there are places that they can take advantage of, such as the public library is one, where the books are free. And, you know, children can choose uh, from a wide selection if parents don't have time to go to the public library because... Sometimes that can be a problem. Then a place that they can go is uh, online. And there are a couple of different um, ways that they can go online. For example, uh, they can use their own phones or mobile devices, or they can go to the library's digital collection. That's true. And, and, you know, the, the I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, public libraries because they are ever so important and vital to our communities. They provide resources to so many people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, like, I mean, libraries have been in the news in Ontario, especially over the last couple of months with the provincial budget. So here's just another example mm-hmm. of, of the necessity of keeping up our our services in that way, because it helps so many people in, in ways that we can't even imagine. I mean, the thing about the libraries, too, is not for children. Not only are they a place where you can borrow books, you can borrow different kinds of media. You can uh, participate. The libraries put uh, put on wonderful programs for families and children. They have preschool programs. Libraries are a great resource for boosting all kinds of literacy and learning skills in general. So, you know, it's definitely a a resource, and because of the digital collections they have now, you know, a a child can go online and get a picture book, and the pictures will be there. It's not just words. So they can use picture books and other resources that libraries have. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, no, it's, and I like the point too, Sharon, that you made about making sure that the kids are accessing things that actually interest them, because that's what's going to keep them coming back and wanting to, you know, continue on in their reading over the summer. If they don't enjoy it, if you're giving them Tolstoy, (laughs) and they're only in like grade six, (laughs) there aren't a lot of uh, 12-year-olds who want to tackle that. Well, the funny thing about this research that uh, I was telling you about where children could choose their own books is... The kinds of books they chose were books that were like kid culture books. So it might be Captain Underpants, or it could be a Scooby-Doo book, or a Paw Patrol book, or, you know, something that's in the popular culture of the day. So that's the kind of books that children choose. And the idea is that children need to have what's called fingertip access to books, so that They're sitting around, it's a summer day, they're looking for something to do, and lo and behold, 
at their fingertips a book and a book that they chose and they're interested in. And, you know, that's the kind of motivator you need. You know, some people will say, well, you know, do you want children to be uh, playing during the summer? And I say absolutely yes, but you also want to have part of that play be play with books. Everybody reads for pleasure, or many people read for pleasure. I ho- I'd love that everybody read for pleasure. But um, we know from research that children who choose their own books and enjoy reading become lifelong readers. And lifelong reading is associated with many, many different kinds of benefits, ranging from cognitive health to uh you know, the development of empathy and a whole variety of uh, elements. Absolutely. That is uh, that is for sure. And I, I love the idea of the fingertip access to, to books. I mean, I, I try. Sharon, I have uh, stacks of books both by my spot on the couch next to my TV and also by my bedside table. It's just trying to get me to put down the phone and, and pick up a book instead. So I'm hoping that I can maybe do the same thing over the summer. Fingertip access to books, have my own summer slide kept at, uh, kept at a distance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other thing for little kids is you want to make sure those books aren't too difficult. And there is a little tip that parents can use uh, in helping their children pick out books is have them turn to the second page of the book and then on the fingers of one of their hands, hold up one finger for every word that they read on that page that's too difficult. If they hit five, right? then that book is probably too difficult for them. It's called the five fingers method. <laughs> hey, that's perfect. And I mean, it's it's savvy, right? It makes perfect sense because that's, as yeah. you said, it's the second page. So it's it's not, you know, easing them in. I mean, it's you're you're well into it in a, in a way. So you should have a pretty good idea of, of how the book will will read. And yeah, that's that's very logical. And I like it. It's easy to remember too. the five finger rule. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, And I mean, it gives children autonomy, and that's the other thing that we know from research is that children need some help in picking books, and effective readers are readers who know how to pick books for themselves. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for your insight and, and sharing uh, some of these great tips with us this afternoon. I'm sure that our listeners will uh, be very interested to see how like, to put them into practice in their own homes with their own kids. Well, thank you so much for your interest. All right. So are you going to try and limit a summer slide either of your own like I'm going to try? Like I wasn't joking. I have like two stacks of books that are just waiting for me to get through and I really need to get through them. But sometimes you just (laughs) you sit there and you watch Netflix instead. But I'm going to try really hard to get through more books this summer. I did like somewhat okay over the winter time. Eh, I should have done more. But it's, it's sometimes it's hard, especially when your job involves a lot of reading all day. So when you leave your work, place of work, you just want to like zone out for a little while and, and watch some Office episodes, you know, before they get taken to NBC's own streaming platform. Mm, we might be talking about that a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, Summer Slide. Also, there are some tips for kids as they uh, try to maintain their math skills. That was where I suffered greatly because I loved English class, loved reading. That was never an issue for me. But mathematics, oh, my long-suffering parents 
had to <laughs> see me struggle through math classes. Um, but yeah, there are tips from experts in terms of uh, keeping up your kids' math skills as well. Like you can do math-related games, uh, you know, have flashcards, or even just, you know, kind of not tricking them into doing math, but, you know, just sort of like if they want to know what time it is, tell them to go read it on the clock instead. Like don't tell them, make them work for it a little bit. Anyway. All these ideas that you can find uh, about limiting the summer slide. What we're going to do now is slide into a commercial break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk with uh, producer Kelly Wong and also producer Jacqueline Carbone about this idea that our selfies are sometimes detrimental to the environment. Yeah. And also our safety. We'll talk about that. Uh, But yeah, have you ever taken like... Uh, a risky selfie, not in terms of the content, <laughs> but in terms of where you are as you take it. Are you in a precarious position uh, or have you put some kind of wildlife in danger to do this? Uh, we're going to talk about that coming up after this very quick commercial break on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. This is your Wednesday afternoon edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. I'm now joined by two fantastic producers, extraordinaire. We have Jacqueline Carbone. Hello. And we also have Kelly Wong. Hi, guys. And so what we're talking about now is uh, I'm not going to blame this all on millennials. I'm really not because we maybe do this a lot and generations after us. What is the next generation down from us? Generation X? Is that it? They're calling it Z. Oh, right Gen now. Z. Yeah, okay. We're millennials and then Gen Z. I think Gen X is above is, us. As above actually, us. Yeah. See, I'm I'm an out of touch leading it's, millennial. It's Gen I don't Z right know. Now, but <laughs> they haven't really like hunkered down on the name. On yet. the name, yeah. They've not really picked for sure. It's kind of okay. lame, right? Well, I mean, make a choice. Stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> These darn Gen Zers. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, selfies. Um, I feel like they kind of really rose to prominence in the early knots, if you will, the noughties. So like the 2005 and, and upwards. Because I remember going... Is that what those are called? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what they're called. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it's a funny little name. Um, but I remember going to visit like my best friend uh, at McMaster when she was in undergrad. And we were out at uh, at an event where there were many people of our age. And she was taking pictures with her friends from school and they were doing selfies with the camera. So like real old school school like flipped around yeah like, oh, yeah yeah camera. like holding it yeah oh, with an actual God, camera so this is this is really aging myself but I remember saying to her do you just want me to like take this picture for you and she's like no no this is the point like we take it ourselves it's called a selfie and I was like uh-huh <laughs> sure <laughs> and now if like my friends who can see my Instagram feed know that I will take a selfie from time to time so it, it's it's a trend obviously that's just been occasionally around. just occasionally every once in a while uh boomerang perhaps uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the thing it's like it's it's part of our culture now our online social media culture that a lot of people do this um but here's the thing this article that's from uh, HuffPost talking about how our selfie obsession is actually quite bad for not only ourselves physically, but the environment physically. Like, have you guys heard of the people who have like fallen off the edge of the of the um, Grand Canyon yes. trying to take what a picture? What are you doing? It's not worth it. Seriously. Like, please, for the love of God, don't imperil your own safety. You can get a good picture without that. Sorry, Kelly. No, no. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, it's happened before where people have gotten hurt and it's happened where nature's gotten hurt, like with the sunflowers and the farmers pleading for them to not go into their field and trespass for one good Instagram photo. 
That's right. I it's mean, ridiculous. Stay at the side of the road. <laughs> like, and, and I mean, I pulled over the other day. I was coming back from St. Thomas and there's this really beautiful sunset. And I was like, this is gorgeous. So I pulled over on the side of the road, not hurting anyone except gravel. <laughs> and I took the picture from there. I didn't I didn't trespass into a field. That's oh, my God. That's that's too much. Well, I remember mm-hmm. that trespassing story. They were saying um, like like they were letting people into the field, but people were like their lines were too long. So people just ended up like cutting through like the side of the field and going into like areas where they weren't like supposed to be. Like so they were opening the fields to like the field was open to people to come take pictures or whatever. Just like wait your turn. People are so impatient. And the other thing, like speaking of wildlife being damaged, there are also uh, cases of animals that have wound up being affected by this. Like there was a bear in Oregon that had to be put to sleep because it was too used to people coming around and it was too tame and there were issues with that. And there were also uh, pictures of people like hoisting up this baby dolphin at a beach once. And that poor thing died because of it was out of the water for too long and it, it was just it was too hard on its system. And it ended up dying. So people are going to extreme lengths to get a shot. And it's just, I mean, I'm all for a good Insta opportunity, but certainly not at the risk of my physical health, well-being or anyone else's for that matter. I agree with that, Jess. And I'm not sure if there's regulations or laws regarding this, but I feel like there should be where there are certain areas that you're not allowed to take pictures in, certain animals that you're not allowed to touch effort, especially for a photo. Um, they should really put some regulations onto that to protect nature. You would think that it would be case potentially of like reckless endangerment. I guess if it, if it led to a big of enough uh, uh, incident, I suppose, or if there was like a, a serious accident or incident, then perhaps there would be criminal charges warranted. But it would have to be pretty high on the on the on the scale of yeah. I think it'd be. It, I would love to have some regulations, definitely, but I think it would be difficult to put into place. Like, how do you how do you regulate that? Right? Like, even if you have like the rules there or the laws there, like you need someone like policing it or watching it or whatever. Like even like I know there's like a dog park regulator or whatever who walks around the dog park to make sure you're not throwing balls and stuff like that. Um, but I know that's not like a like I know someone volunteered for that position and something. I'm not saying that someone wouldn't volunteer for this, but I think it would be hard to do that. But I don't know. I don't know what goes through people's minds. Like like there's a story of the a hammerhead, like this fisher or fisherman catching a hammerhead shark and just dragging it to shore. So people are taking selfies with this shark like like one that's dangerous it's a shark um and two like why would you why would you do that to another living creature like do you want someone to drag you out of your home and just take pictures with you like i don't think that's that's a uh, fun for well i don't think that's fun for anyone but obviously it's been so fun for some people yeah it's you know the idea that selfies are, are have the potential to be pretty selfish uh <laughs> and also this um this article it says like the stats say that People are more likely to be killed in the act of taking a selfie than in the act of swimming with a school of sharks, since we're talking about sharks. But it's just, it's crazy. Like, I I took, like, a little boomerang on, uh, I guess it was Sunday night. I was on a friend's balcony uh, at a high-rise apartment. So I was, like, 16 floors up. And I, like, to get the shot that I wanted, I had my hand over the balcony edge with my phone. And you know that that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you're like, oh, I don't know, this don't is a bit it. high don't up. Like, it. oh, don't no, don't it. drop it. Thankfully, I have a pop socket. So <laughs> I was you're able to on. hold on to it very well. Uh, but it did feel a little bit dangerous. And I was like, if I am freaked out by holding my phone over the ledge, I can't even imagine what people will do, like how they feel as they're taking a picture that is in a more precarious position. Like, I just, I, I wouldn't have the stomach for it. I agree. I, um, when I was in, uh, I went to Wales for uh, um, 
what am I saying? I went to Wales for a uh, exchange when I was in a university, and um, when we were there, we went to Norway. Everything's so close in Europe, so we went to Norway. And we we went to like all those kind of like Instagrammable places. I want to say picturesque because I don't want to say Instagrammable. I don't want to change this. Uh, the vocabulary, but um, they're picturesque, and there's like the one rock that's like in the middle, like the boulders like stuck in the middle of these two things. So we took some pictures there, and uh, some other stuff like that. And I found uh, like you could have taken some really precarious photos. Like I definitely like looked down these cliffs, and I'm like, I could die right now. Um, so it gets really scary. But there's ways to take it where you can like still have this really cool photo that you're not like interfering with nature as much. And uh, you know you have someone like stand at a distance, and you stand over here, and you're like at the top of this tall cliff rather than you like hanging off of it or something like that. And uh, I also found that there's this thing called geotagging where like on Instagram, you say like, where, where are you located? Right. And then someone can click it and find out where you are. And that's kind of turned into people like an influx of people going into certain areas. Um, specifically, I saw an article regarding uh, the Grand Canyon or some area in Arizona um, where like you they literally shows you the landscape changing from 20 to from 2000 to like 2011 and how like there's like this tiny parking lot with like a few cars in it and maybe some people to like now there's a huge parking lot and like the whole like just the whole landscape's different because people are walking on it there's more cars there and they have to change it to make it safer for for people who are kind of who for people who there's just an influx of of visitors and tourists now yeah it's wild like that's that's pretty intense like have you guys ever thought of um, like a like a an Instagram or like detox of that kind where it's like, okay, I'm going to go to this brunch and not take a picture of my beautifully assembled plate. Like the presentation is gorgeous, but you know what? Maybe I'll just enjoy it instead of like documenting it. Or is that something that you would consider doing? I Yelp. So I always take pictures of what I eat, but I don't always post it on Instagram or social media. I'm not super big on social media anyway, but I do feel kind of awkward posting too many food pictures because um, one of my friends called me out. She's like, you eat out all the time. I don't think that's all that healthy. I'm like, Laura, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> you live your own life, Kelly. That's right. You do you, girl. But yeah, like that's it is funny because it and then it gets into the whole perception of of what we what 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 is put out there on social media and we believe it of other people like the true you right? yeah the grass is greener sort of uh phenomenon where other people's lives look so glamorous uh but in reality they're just the same of as as yours you're just only posting the highlights so you shouldn't ever compare someone else's highlights to your behind the scenes because that's what you know to be true wow we've got we went real deep here <laughs> your lives are great enjoy them <laughs> put down your phones and and live in the moment i guess that's the message but um uh, kelly and Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time and uh, weighing in on Instagram and selfies and the dangers that they pose. That's it from us on London Live this afternoon. We are done. Jacqueline LaBelle is up next with the 980 CFPL Newsreel this afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. We will chat with you again tomorrow at one o'clock.